Welcome back to Balagan. The ultra-orthodox rabbinical institutions control almost every aspect of life in Israel and narrow all other denominations' actions. Over the years, there are voices who challenge the ultra-orthodox and the Israeli politicians in this area. The Israel Religious Action Center, IRAC, the social justice arm of the reform movement in Israel, is one of the strongest voices working to gain equality, religious freedom, and pluralism. Along with my guest, Rabbi Noah Satat, director of the Israel Religious Action Center, we will review how things look like in Israel. So, Noah, welcome to Balagan. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Let's start with some background about the reform movement action in Israel and the, I would say, the relationship between state and religion in Israel, because I think it's combined, right? Absolutely. So should we start where we are now and go back to the past, or should we start in the past and move to the future? How would you like to do it? I would say let's give the people some background. Okay. So I'll go way back and then come back to where we are today. In the very first years of the Zionist movement in Israel, the reform movement was reluctant to stake a stand for Zionism. And so orthodoxy joined the Zionist movement or their orthodox forces in the Zionist movement since about 1910. The reform movement stood on the sidelines for quite a while. There were major, major reform activists in Israel in the early 20s and 30s, the people who established the Hebrew University that we spoke about earlier. One of them was a Zionist reform rabbi. But the reform movement as a movement did not take a stand for Zionism until the early 40s. The first reform uh, Zionist uh, institution in Israel was the Leo Beck Center in Haifa, which was established 85 years ago, followed by Congregation in Jerusalem, Congregation Ha'el, which I love dearly, that was founded in the 50s. In Jerusalem. Uh, in Jerusalem, yes. Amazing. Uh, and the reform movement as a whole started to gain a lot of interest in Zionism in the 70s. And then there was a huge movement of people moving to Jerusalem, establishing Zionist institutions like the two reform kibbutzim in the, in the south of Israel, uh, the World Union for Progressive Judaism that was moved to Jerusalem, multiple congregations. We now have 50 congregations all over Israel that were established. The majority of them were established in the 80s and the 90s. And the reform movement in North America and worldwide has really been very engaged in Zionism since. So the reform movement was late in the game, in the Zionist game. But we're making up for it and we're making a lot of progress right now in terms of the engagement of the Israeli public. But obviously the power structure in terms of religion and the state was set in the early years of the Zionist movement and even before the establishment of the state. And that's what we're still fighting today. You're spread around the country, right, all in Israel? Over. From near Eilat in the south to Rosh Pina in the north, all over. But I know from my experience as a Jerusalemite that over the years there were many, many, many fights and arguments because the ultra-Orthodox rabbinical institutions tried to block both the reform movement and the conservative movement in Israel. And it's an ongoing struggle. I mean, you were leading a couple of major, I don't want to call it battles, but some sort of a battle around the Western Wall and about the freedom of religious in Israel and Jewish pluralism. Conversion, absolutely. How does it work with the rabbinical institutions? I mean, 
when did they really started to take actions in order to narrow down the steps of the reform movement in Israel? The first things that they tried to do was not to narrow the place of the reform movement, but to expand their own status control. and power. Control, right? Control is the right word. So let's do a little bit of a brief Zionist history. So the Zionist movement came to life in the 1880s and waves after waves of immigration came to Israel, mostly in the beginning of the 20th century. Um, the Orthodox bodies existed in Israel for centuries before that. And for a while, they were the majority. But in the late 40s, when Israel was uh, about to be established, the Orthodox bodies and population was already a small minority. And the powers that be had to negotiate with them. One of them, the Ben-Gurion, our first prime minister, who tried to negotiate the establishment of the state, was very worried that the ultra-Orthodox establishment, which was, again, a tiny minority then, would speak to the international bodies against the Zionist movement. And right. he tried to give them all sorts of compromises in order to prevent that. And also in that time, the vast majority of Jewish community in Europe, the traditional Jewish community, the institutions of learning were all wiped out. So Ben-Gurion was both led by political pressures, but also by the feeling that the world of Torah study is a dying world that is about to perish. And he had to give some sort of incentive for that world to continue to exist and to be sustained. And so in 1948, before the state was established, Ben-Gurion gave the ultra-Orthodox bodies that were then present in Israel three guarantees that were never codified into law, but are still mentioned as the status quo agreement and still have a vast influence on Jewish life in Israel today, or not only for Jews, for every citizen of Israel, including the non-Jews. He promised the ultra-Orthodox establishment control over the issue of marriage and divorce personal status in Israel. He gave exemption from Torah study to 4,000 students who were studying Torah. Then he said, no, okay, you know, they're maintaining this ancient tradition. Let's leave them from that and allow them to study. And he promised that the Shabbat would be a day of rest in Israel. Those were his promises. And from then, these issues were not changed. So, for example, now we have over 74,000 people who are exempt from military service because they study yeah, Torah. Yeah. That's the growth. And we're still unable to shake that, even though it's not even law. And, for example, on the issue of public transportation on Shabbat, which is a central issue for Israel. In most of the cities in Israel, public transportation is shut down for Shabbat from uh, Friday sundown to Saturday night. And that has vast implications. It means, for example, that people own more cars because you don't have public transportation, so you have to have a car for Shabbat. It has environmental implications, socioeconomic implications, and all of that is because of the status quo agreement. So cities that didn't have public transportation on Shabbat in 1948, like Tel Aviv, which was just a tiny city then, cannot have public transportation now. Cities that had public transportation, like Haifa, which now has a substantial ultra-Orthodox community, but right. they had public transportation in 1948, so they can continue to have it now. And new cities like Arad, which also has a substantial ultra-Orthodox community, can have public transportation because they weren't there when the status quo agreement was signed. The status quo agreement does not have the word bus in it, but still it has a huge influence on all of our lives right now and huge economic ramifications. So the ultra-Orthodox community was very, very focused on that in the early years of the state. And they didn't view the reform movement as a threat because we weren't there. And in some ways they succeeded, in other ways they didn't, to own Judaism for Israelis. 
the Israelis would look to them as the torch holders for Judaism. Yeah. And when the reform movement and other movements came into the scene in, in order to try and give alternatives to Jewish identity and to the ownership of Jewish texts, then they perceived that as a huge threat. And that began in the 70s and continues until today. The ultra-Orthodox establishment, the ultra-Orthodox leadership is petrified by the idea that there would be an alternative to marriage, an alternative to conversion, an alternative to praying at the Western Wall. I think that they feel that their representation of the only way to be Jewish is the only way that they can maintain the immense power and control that they currently have on lives of Israelis. Yeah, so you mentioned the exemption from the army, and I do want to shed some light about that because it's interesting. We are recording on February 1st, 2021, and yesterday at midnight, the Supreme Court's ruling about the exemption of the ultra-Orthodox from the army banned, so the government was supposed to make a decision whether they are now recruiting the ultra-Orthodox that starting today have to be recruited to the army. And everybody knows that it's a struggle, so I doubt if anybody is going to enforce this law. And on the other hand, you're mentioning Ben-Gurion. Ben-Gurion actually gave them a quota. He didn't give everybody the permission to ban the service. It was actually Menachem Begin that in 1977, when he actually brought the ultra-Orthodox into the coalition, he just breached the barrier and made it uh, something more... I would say, on the entire uh, ultra-Orthodox community. But yeah, it's more of a political struggle than a real struggle with the ultra-Orthodox. I think that what you're talking about, the Shabbat, is actually more meaningful, but it goes under the radar, because eventually that really influences people's lives. And of course, marriage and divorce in Israel, which yeah, is a big I, I, issue. I think that if you ask people, Israelis, to rate... So first of all, just in general, if you ask Israelis to rate what they are most concerned about politically, then consistently Israelis don't rate threat of the Iranian bomb or even the Israeli-Palestinian right. conflict as the thing that they're most concerned about. Israelis are very focused on issues of religion and state. They see that as one of the major sources of inequality and poverty and other issues in Israeli society. So Israelis are very, very engaged in these issues. And if the specific religion and state issues and public transportation on Shabbat comes very high on that list, people would say, I feel like I'm imprisoned in my home for a day every week. That's a lot of the time, yes. That's true for the day-to-day -day lives, but eventually, when it comes to, and we'll take it to the politics for a second, it doesn't correlate with how they vote eventually, because they, they get the fears of Iran and the Hamas and all of that, and it works for some people. <laughs> yeah. Um, when you're talking about I don't call it battles, but we'll call it battles again. <laughs> I mean, I don't find a, a more suitable word for that. What are the biggest things that you're fighting for biggest at things. the moment in Israel? I can give you the two major court issues that we're dealing with right now, but I want to reframe the issue and then go into the specific details. I think that the question, what is Judaism, is a central issue for Israeli democracy. I mean, if Judaism is about being sexist and racist and anti-democratic, then that's a huge issue because Judaism is central to the Israeli democratic debate on almost every question. And so when you debate whether you let asylum seekers have status in Israel, 
it's not the immigration question in Israel is how do we maintain the Jewish identity of Israel? So there are some who would say, you know, we need as many Jews here in order to maintain the Jewish identity. And there is a progressive camp that needs to say our Jewish history teaches us that we offer refuge to people who are fleeing genocide. And so it's a central how we develop a Jewish identity and a Jewish rhetoric is central to all of the issues that we have in Israel. In terms of the two specific issues that I want to share with you right now, one is we are waiting for a decision on a conversion case that we've been leading for the past 15 years about the rights of reform and conservative converts in Israel to gain citizenship. We're expecting a ruling any day now, and we're speaking on February 1st, but we're anticipating it any day. And I think it may have a big influence on the elections on March 23rd, because I think it will become entangled in the rhetoric of the ultra-Orthodox parties that are running for the Knesset. And I'm very busy today in looking into a list that will be submitted by February 4th in the past election systems that we had two election systems in 2019. We made a big effort to disqualify Jewish supremacist racist candidates from running to Knesset. It's a huge undertaking every time we do it. And it's in a very short space of time. And we do it because we believe that any extremism in democracy is very dangerous for the fabric of democracy. We've seen it around the world. But specifically, we believe that it's our duty to raise the Jewish voice that opposes racism and extremism and promotes uh, tolerance and peace. So these are, I would say, the two major issues that we're dealing with right now. I think it's very important. I mean, I'm saying it sadly. I remember the days when uh, Rabbi Meir Kahana, who formed and established the Kach, was banned from the Knesset. Even the Likud party, when he was coming to speech, they would leave the main hall of the Knesset. That's the most shocking thing, that we disqualified candidates in 2019, but last time that anybody was disqualified was in 1988. And who led the disqualification? It was Dan Meridor, who was a leader in the Likud party. And in yeah. 2019, we were fighting against the Likud party that wanted to include Kah representative, Kahana uh, students. That's an example of how we see ourselves as a central voice in Israel, promoting our values for the entire benefit of Israeli society, not only for issues of our own movement, which are, of course, very important to us. Yeah, it's really complicated. Things in Israel are never... Uh, never are never. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. So thank you but for you... doing a podcast, trying to <laughs> simplify things. I, I don't envy that job. <laughs> hey, it's my pleasure. I feel obligated, by the way, to bring those voices, you know, to English speakers who wish to understand more about yeah. what's happening in Israel. And, yeah. you know, you were mentioning how are we delivering the Jewish values and what type of Judaism we want to see in Israel. And I think that the ultra-Orthodox, what they mainly preserve is their way of living and the halakha, which in many cases is irrelevant. And I will give one example because, as I mentioned, I grew up in Jerusalem and I remember my late grandmother, she was hospitalized for a long time in Sharet Tzedek. Sharet Tzedek is known to be mainly for ultra-Orthodox, not limited to, but mainly ultra-Orthodox. And that was the first time when I saw Malit Shabbat. Okay, the Jewish trick that you don't need to press on the button so the elevator will go from one floor to the other. And I was asking my father, so how does it run if we don't need to press the buttons? It doesn't go with electricity? And that was a naive question of a child. 
And most Israelis will agree with this type of question that in a way, halacha doesn't work for us these days and things need to be different. But it's harder to make those changes in Israel. How do you see that and who are you working with in order to make those changes on the perspective on how Judaism should look like? And what are so the I, values that were? So I think that both the reform movement and ultra-orthodoxy are a response to modernity, right? Modernity is a new phenomena that brings us huge opportunities and huge challenges that we're thinking about. How do we preserve our Jewish identity and how do we ensure continuity and how do we pass on our values to the next generations? It's a big question. And the answer that the ultra-orthodox community has given as a response, by the way, to the reform movement is saying, we're not changing anything. We're going to dress like our parents dressed, even if it makes no sense in this weather. The dress is not holy. It's just we're not changing anything. And the reform movement is trying to say we need to adapt and to see how we preserve the essence of the values in a changing reality. And that is a lot more nuanced, more complicated. I think it has a lot more chance to survive long term. These are interesting times to witness that, specifically around the COVID response, which has been so different in the ultra-Orthodox communities and in the rest of Israel, where there's a huge uproar and tremendous anger against the ultra-Orthodox community for refusing to abide by the COVID regulations that all of the rest of Israeli society is handling. And just yesterday, the data came out that 1% of all ultra-Orthodox people over 60 have died from COVID because of the lack of the response to regulations, that's four times more than any other sector of Israeli society. I'm really curious to see how this community that lives on respect for elders, I mean, I look to my neighbors and the way they treat their parents and grandparents, my ultra-Orthodox neighbors, and saying, hum, hum, how do I get my kids to respect me that way? And then they create this dangerous situation for their older members I'm wondering whether we're facing a time of change. I think that COVID will bring both change in the way the general Israeli society is accepting the current status quo with the ultra-Orthodox community. I'm sure that there are voices within the ultra-Orthodox community. It's always hard to hear them because it's such a closed society. I'm sure there are voices inside the community that are also heartbroken and confused and questioning the current status quo. We work with many different organizations one of them, it's, which is always kind of a centrist, very moderate institution called the Israeli Democracy Institute. And they always bring these very lukewarm compromises in terms of religion and state. And today, yeah. their main scholar published uh, an op in the central page of Yedio Tachon, which is a major newspaper, saying, riding the tiger, which is basically saying, we've tried to ride the tiger of the ultra-Orthodox community for so long, and yeah. we haven't responded to the way it's acting, and now it's going to eat us all. And we need to figure out a new relationship. And so I think that we're in times of change at this point. I think that a lot of Israelis are now criticizing the politicians over what you're saying. It's not just riding the tiger. It's, you know, for many years, the state of Israel did not enforce the law in the ultra-Orthodox communities and let them live their lives. And if, to be honest... When it comes to crime, they are not the ones leading the polls, you know, the statistics of crimes in their sector. But on the other hand, they live completely different lives than other Israelis. They are not connected to the Israeli day-to-day lives. And 
it's an interest of the rabbis to keep them segregated because they don't want to lose the control over the community. And there are actually a lot of voices within the ultra-Orthodox community. People like uh, Yehuda Meshi Zahav, who unfortunately lost three family relatives in the past two weeks to COVID, and he went out against the rabbis. But do you think it will bring any change in the upcoming elections? So I think that many people in Israel, politicians and thought leaders, spoke about cultural relativism. And IRAC is one of the leading organizations against gender segregation in the public sphere, meaning the separation of men and women on buses or flights or cemeteries or post offices, many, many different instances in which we saw gender segregation. And some of the rhetoric from both liberal and ultra-Orthodox forces was saying they work according to their customs that are not part of the Israeli society, and so we don't enforce democratic norms on them. And I think that those chickens are coming home to roost in the sense that if we don't enforce democratic norms in in order to protect women, then it's going to hurt the entire society. Democratic norms need to be enforced in all parts of Israeli society. Yeah. I'm happy to say that we have a special guest joining us now, Rabbi Josh Weinberg, Vice President of Arza. Josh, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Uh, Thank you, Kobe. Wonderful to be with you. Josh was actually the one making the introduction between me and Noah, and Josh is working in the United States to promote the connections between the reform movement in the U.S. to Israel, and... I want to go and now take you guys to the connection between the reform movement in Israel and what it's doing and to the reform movement in the United States. How does it work? I mean, I assume that you are supporting the reform movement in Israel and the wish for a change, but how does it actually work? Yeah, first of all, thank you, Kobe. And uh, it's wonderful to be, of course, with my colleague and teacher, Rabbi Noah Statat. And just thinking about what she was saying, what she was sharing, you know, in addition to the issues that we're seeing with the ultra-Orthodox, and one of the things that, you know, inspired me to become a rabbi in Israel was that I think that, and Noah, tell me if you think differently, but I think that many Israelis, while frustrated and upset with the monopoly of the ultra-Orthodox in Israel and the religious coercion that we're seeing, also have this sort of innocent curiosity about what it means to be Jewish. And what we're able to do in our congregations and through our social justice and activist work is to show them that, first of all, there's more than one way to be Jewish, which I think most people know because Israel's very diverse religiously and ethnically, but also that there's more than one way to be religious. And I think that that's an interesting discourse that's happening in Israel, that what we're finding is that this sort of, I, I call it like a polarizing dichotomy between religious and secular, that no longer answers the needs of the mainstream. And so I think people are looking for meaning in their lives and looking for ways to celebrate Shabbat and the holidays and, you know, to do that and to give their children a Jewish education identity that's not black and white. And it's not that, you know, you have to observe all of the halachot or that you're saying, what does this mean to us? And I think the pendulum is swinging back in Israel for people to seek more of that. And that's what I'm proud of, that not only can we provide homes for that, whether it's our synagogues or groups of people that are coming together to form a community, and to say that these are our values, that we're standing up for these things in the public sphere. Now, in America, obviously, religion works very differently in the United States, and you have a system where government doesn't support religion, and people do it on their own. So 
sometimes we see that people just live totally separate lives and we're not influenced by what one group does or doesn't. What I'm trying to show people in North America is that first and foremost, our Zionist values have evolved to say that we need to support what our reform movement is doing because it's changing Israeli society. If we believe in a Jewish and democratic state, then our reform movement is representing us on the ground in building that, both from our you know, congregational community arm and with our advocacy in the courts and the Knesset, and to say that. And I want reformed Jews, regardless of where they are on the political spectrum, now, this is not a right or left or how you feel about the conflict or, you know, say about Iran or something like that, but just to say, okay, these are values that I hold dear to me, like egalitarianism, like equality, pluralism. And if we want to see that in Israel, then we have to support our movement in what it's doing. That was very enlightening. And I think it's important for people to hear that because the connection these days, it's way wider than the halakha point of view which ultra-Orthodox focused only on that. What you're saying and what Noah said before, I consider myself to be secular. Actually, in the US, I would be called a Masorti, but uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a different definition in Israel and the US. And I can share that because of the rabbinical institutions and the way the ultra-Orthodox work in Israel, a lot of Israelis who immigrate outside of Israel, the first thing they hear when you're telling them about Jewish institutions, they automatically are against it. I mean, we're sending our kids to Jewish day schools, but most of my friends, and it's not just about the money because the Jewish day school do give heavy subsidies to Israelis who wish to join the communities. Once you are telling them that you're sending your kids to Jewish day schools, they're asking you, what happened? You became religious? And that's one of the beautiful things that I see in the US which is unlike in Israel, you have a lot of ways to be connected to your Jewish values. Uh, isn't that crazy, Kobe, that you had to go to the U.S. in order to experience that? That's insane. It is crazy. It's crazy. It's, and the Jewish say you should have that. Now you don't have to go to Brooklyn to do that. I agree. I completely agree because my whole perspective on Judaism changed after I moved here and spent a couple of years here. You know, as a secular in Jerusalem, I grew up, I'll tell you more than that, you know, that reforms are not even Jewish, you know. That's something that a lot of ultra-Orthodox like to say, and it catch with some people. You know, when I moved here and I realized that in Israel, Judaism is just in your veins, because whether you like it or whether you don't, Shabbat is three days by law. Everything is by law. And kosher, for example, is the, you have it everywhere. It's a default. While in the U.S., if you want to preserve your Jewish tradition, you really need to work it out. But you know, throughout our history as Jews, it's always been work. It's right. never been something that was given to us. Right. All of our previous generations who brought us to be Jews here today were people who worked for it, who said, I'm choosing this for my family, sometimes at you know, prices that were even more expensive than day school. And they made that choice and committed to it. And fact that in Israel, it cheapens it. If you don't make a choice, if you don't make an effort, right. then it cheapens right. your Jewish identity. I don't think it helps it. I completely agree. But, right. And I would also just add that from the North American perspective, I think that we have a lot to learn from Israel too. What would it look like if every Jew in North America or in the diaspora could exist in a Jewish language, you know, in the Hebrew language? How would that change things? How would it look like if we looked at the world sort of through Jewish eyes 
And that's something that I think was attainable only through the sort of the Zionist movement and the establishment of a Jewish state. And I think that the question is that I'm asking today is, what do we have to learn from each other's experience? And I think that we in America have a lot to learn from the Israeli experience about, you know, Jewish culture, Jewish identity, the sort of the what Achad Am had to say about Zionism and, and building in this Jewish culture. And I think that Israel, what I'd like to export now to Israel is the notion of independence of religion, let's say, the independence of building a community, a congregation, a Jewish community that's not dependent on the government and it's not in existence, you know, sort of in the public sphere as much. And that's the difference is that, you know, in Israel, we're fighting over the public sphere. And uh, that's why we need those, that rule of law to come in and say, like, okay, here are some red lines. Like, you have to enforce the regulations that everyone else has to, or you're not allowed to prevent someone else from observing, you know, a religious observance, let's say. It's a big struggle. But I still think that we have a lot to learn from each other's experience to enhance and enrich our own Jewish lives here. I agree on that also. But I actually think, once again, as an Israeli, that Israelis have a lot to learn from diaspora Jews, and especially from what's happening in the U.S. I mean, it's way more challenging to choose to be Jewish than what's happening in Israel, that you're Jewish by default, and everything, like Noah said, you know, is being uh, tossed on a silver plate. I mean, no, I think that... It's not a competition. We can, we can learn from both sides. But yeah, I agree. I agree mm-hmm. that... It's interesting to see that because Israelis often view themselves as the authentic Jews, and sometimes they're also viewed by Americans as this, you have a Hebrew accent, you must be connected to God. But actually, (laughs) there is a way in which the Jewish way of life in the diaspora is actually more authentic to Jewish tradition than the Israeli way of life, which is new, in which you don't get to choose to be something else, you have to be Jewish. I loved what you said, yeah. but I want to just say something. It's a bit of funny, but uh, Josh will agree with me that eventually God doesn't understand Israelis because of the Hebrew accent. He understands them because of the Hebrew. So <laughs> let's uh, let's put the message out there. Learn Hebrew, people. Learn Hebrew. Not just because mm-hmm. it's the language of the Bible, but it's our cultural root. It's yes, and of beautiful course. Beautiful language. I couldn't agree with you more, but of course, you know, we remember what the Shulchan Aruch says, you know, Tfilah Milah B'cholashon, that any way you want to express it is, I don't want Hebrew to be the barrier, yet I think it's what will connect us as a people. And I think what Noah said before that, you know, it doesn't have to be a competition. Right. What is our goal, really? I think that we want to try and live a life of Torah and mitzvot and try to apply those values that we see on the ground, right? You know, it seems somewhat simple. So the example that Noah brought up about asylum seekers, you know, What does the Torah tell us about how we treat others, about how we treat strangers or foreigners who are not part of our community? Well, as a matter of fact, the Torah has a lot to say about that. And it's not some obscure passage that we have to go find at the end of some Talmudic tractate. And that's where I see is the fundamental argument or the fundamental fight that we're fighting is about these values and how they play out and really what it means to be Jewish in the Jewish state. And I think that what I would criticize some, both of my own movement and other movements, is the understanding that we have to have both. We have to have ritual and we have to study our sources. And we also have to look at the, how they play out in real life. I just want to go back to your point about Hebrew. We have an ongoing newsletter that we send our supporters. And every month we ask all of our staff what their favorite thing about Israel is. 
And the thing that comes in first every year is Hebrew. Hebrew is a wonderful, it's a beautiful language. It's so smart. I highly recommend it. Unfortunately, our time is almost up. And I would like to give you guys the opportunity, you know, to give us one last message to our listeners. But we will continue the discussion in a future episode because I think that there is a lot more light to shed. Noah? What I urge all listeners is to learn more about internal issues in Israel. It's confusing, but I'm hoping that you find it interesting. And we need your voices. And as we all spoke uh, in this program, we have things to teach and things to learn. And your engagement in issues of justice in Israel helps us on the ground to create change. Israel is still in state building stages and people who are engaged will make an influence and set the trajectory for where we will be in the future. And thank you, Kobe, for inviting me and for doing this show. Hey, thank you for joining me today, Noah. It was a pleasure. Josh? My thanks to you, Kobe, and to Noah for this uh, opportunity. I would say three things. One, for those who are frustrated with what's going on in Israel, okay, don't give up. Channel that frustration into activity and to support for everything that we're doing on the ground. And for those who may see these issues as not important because there's a bigger existential threat, well, there's always going to be that. And keep in mind, these are the issues that affect people every day on their lives, and we have an opportunity to influence there. And third is do whatever Rabbi Noah Sattat says. I mean, that's always, you know, my basic default is uh, do that. And so I uh, will follow. So I hope that we can continue and build support among all of your listeners. So to that, thank you so much. Thank you, Josh. I'll second with what you said. For our listeners, I will add the links to the IRAC uh, website and to Arta's website so you can read more and learn more about what they're doing. I really want to thank you again, Rabbi Noah Satat from Israel and Rabbi Josh Weinberg from Brooklyn in Israel because before COVID, you used to spend a lot of your time in actually the Holy Land. And I hope we'll go back to normal days when we can fly again and uh, to meet in person. Amen. So thank you very, very much. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and wanted to thank you for joining me. If you like my podcast, feel free to rank it and share it with others. I also invite you to subscribe to my podcast so you will get updates when a new episode is on the air. And last but not least, I invite you to check my website, Balagan, www.balagan.ltd, for more content about Israel's history and politics. Bye for now, and have a great day.